Welcome to That's No Longer My Ministry, a podcast that tells a different story about healing. A story of healing as discipline, as real, hard, and uncomfortable work. This is a place where we honor the journeys of marginalized folk actively purging years of programming and the consequence of never being centered. A place for acknowledging and moving through trauma. A place where radical self-liberation is sought and no is a complete sentence. You should listen if you're someone who wants to build the kind of life you don't need to escape from. I'm your host, Nadia, a black woman who has spent way too much time trying to fit into a number of spaces that weren't and still aren't meant for me. But that's no longer my ministry. I am feeling so content right now in my mind and my body. Hmm. Yeah, I feel content. I feel whole. I feel full. And I feel like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. That's amazing. That's the first time anybody has said that to me on this podcast. <laughs> well, like, I'm exactly know. where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> That is not a perpetual state, but right now that's what we have. And I am incredibly grateful for it. (laughs) I love that. I would love for you to introduce yourself to me and the listeners by saying who you are and how your values inform who you are. Hello, listeners. (laughs) Uh, My name is Alka Valde. Yeah, who am I? I love this question. It's so like open-ended because it's like, who do I choose to be right now? Yes. Um, I have many parts of my identity. I would say I am a Black woman um, or assigned woman at birth. Recently, I've been questioning gender like, man, have I ever felt a gender? Or hmm. did I just uh, get handed that and then decided, sure, that worked for me. Um, but for all intents and purposes, Black woman, I'm a refugee from the Gambia, which is in West Africa. Um, I am a yoga teacher. I am a facilitator of healing, a gem dropper, a poet, a writer, a creative, an overthinker. Um, (laughs) And yeah, someone who is actively healing. So many things that I am. I'm like nature lover you know, dancer, like, what else am I? I do a lot of things. And I am a lot of, um, yeah, I'm a lot within my body. And it's so hard to quantify who you are, right? Especially without reaching for what you do, um, like how you make money or how other people perceive you, right? I've tried very hard in the last year not to ask people, what do you do? I don't like answering that question, to be honest, and it's my least favorite question because I don't know when the conversation had to be centered on like labor and yeah, and and just how do you make money? What a weird question to just ask people every day as your intro. (laughs) Right. And it's like, that's the least interesting part of me. I mean, it's interesting, but it's just not the most interesting part of who I am. How do your values inform who you are? Ooh, good question. (laughs) Um, You know, I think in my life, I have definitely been a person who tries to get my values to match what my life looks like and have a lot of trouble when that that isn't the case or that, you know, when I'm perceiving that what is available in my life isn't matching who I aspire to be. So though it is, it's one of those things where like my values are aspirational and real. Mm. And I think recently I've really started to learn that about other people as well, right? Because sometimes you can come into a situation where whether it be a job or a relationship or like, you know, any any way that you're relating to someone that they can say, this is who I am or this is what I value. And then you start to notice that sometimes people or situations don't always live up to those values. Right. Um, That sometimes values are just as aspirational as they are in real practice. And so that's something that I've had to come to recently, not just in myself, but being very gracious with other people and other situations as well. So I think personally, I'm always trying to align my life with my values. 
and recently have really come to the understanding and realization that it's okay if you're not exactly there yet, okay to be a work in progress towards whatever you hold as, you know, your core values. It's so interesting you talk about trying to align with them consistently, intentionally, which a lot of people don't necessarily think about, you know, I think in a lot of ways, like you said, sometimes they're just aspirational. If somebody asks you like, what are my values? These are my values. And then you look at how they're living and it's like, uh, I'm not <laughs> quite seeing that. My question is, what do you find the hardest about continually aligning with your values? I think it's that you're always learning something new, that mm. there's always new information coming in. And sometimes that information builds upon each other. And sometimes that information completely challenges what you thought that you knew. So maybe I will say, for example, oh, this is, I hope this isn't too controversial, y'all, but <laughs> I'm gonna bring <laughs> like, it in. On this podcast, never. <laughs> <laughs> I've always, valued myself as a person who is open-minded, who can hear many different perspectives and um, values nuance, right? And I found myself, right, a few months ago, really being that person who was calling other people stupid for not getting the vaccine on my Instagram. Mm. And I was, you know, I think very much in the place that other people are when they're so defensive and upset about people um, not making this choice that is um, many of us believe are for the good of everyone, yeah. right? And so I was totally in that boat of just like, why are you denying science? Like, why don't you care about community? Like, you know, on and on and on. And really, I think using shame yeah, as a tool to call people out and call them in. And the information that kind of has been revealed to me since um, has been like, one, I wasn't living in my values doing that because I know that shame and blame does not actually work to convince people of anything or to make them behave differently. And I know that. Yeah. Um, and two, that um, the people who I know in my personal life who are like vaccine resistors, as I call them, like the black vaccine resistors, have now engendered like an incredible amount of curiosity and nuance mm. in my perspective, because then I had to um, contend with myself that these are actually people who are incredibly community oriented, that they do care about other people, that they're smart, and they have a survival mechanism, just as I do. Like they're yeah. not out here trying to die. They just believe something differently than I do. And having to come to a place of nuance to say to myself, okay, trained anthropologist, why don't you take a step back? And instead of evaluating folks based on what you're being told about them, why don't you evaluate them on what you know to be true about them? And mm. what do I know to be true is that Black folks who are vaccine resistors are fundamentally distrustful of the U.S. government, right. are fundamentally distrustful of the U.S. medical system, and have the actual evidence and like proof and lived right. experience to feel that way. And that then had to make me look at myself and be like, here you are calling people idiots and out they names because <laughs> they're not choosing to do this thing that you believe is correct. And you weren't being open-minded, you weren't being nuanced. And in fact, even in my value of yeah, never letting white supremacy turn me against my people. Like I wasn't doing that because the onus of trust in public health is on the government, actually, right. right? The onus of trust in public health is on the medical system. And so the fact that this many people can say, I'm not going to take something because I don't trust you, that the onus should be put back on the system and not on the people. And that we shouldn't be like fighting our, each other and tearing one another apart when the reality is people aren't gonna buy into some stuff that they think is gonna kill them because the system is constantly proving that yeah. they are trying to kill us. <laughs> right. Oh so. man, that's a whole word. I, <laughs> I feel like, cause that's something I've been struggling with too. 
I wouldn't say that I was going out telling people that they were stupid because of it, but I was feeling that way, right? Like I was holding that. And I also was holding a lot of anger because I'm like, this is your fault. Now we can't get out of the house, you know? And it's just like, like you said, we can't put that on these people when they have a long history of understanding of how these systems work against us. Right. And when people have you know, incidents of medical harm within their own experience or within their own family, how can you then turn around and ask them to trust the same medical system that brought them harm and like didn't remediate it, didn't apologize, didn't pay for it, right? And just kept moving on. And now they've got commercials and money and all these resources to try to give folks this thing that, you know, people are like, I'm actually good. I'm going to take the risk of dying over trusting you. Sorry. Right. Which is um, something they should take as good feedback for how they've been operating and maybe try to reimagine something new because what they're doing isn't working. And the funny part is I then, you know, got to the point of like, well, you know, I know that my desire and value is that this system, as you just said, has to be reimagined that the system as it exists has to be composted mm-hmm. taken down rebuilt land back to the indigenous folks like it, yes it cannot exist in this way and so now i'm like you know anti-vaxxers if y'all are the reason that the medical system falls apart maybe i support you because maybe the ultimate goal is still in alignment with actually what our ultimate goal is which is like yeah, that these pharmaceutical companies can't control the way that we heal ourselves or yeah. the fact that they often aren't even trying to heal us, that they're trying to have us on daily medications or that they're treating symptoms rather than root causes or that the very factors that cause people to get sick are not addressed because it's more profitable to not address them. Right. So shout out to the anti-vaxxers. I don't support the white ones necessarily, but the black ones I'm with all the way. (laughs) I'm rooting for everybody black. So I just feel like (laughs) we're aligned on that. That's great. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But that perfectly sets us up to transition into the first segment. Case, I really wanted to dig into the nonprofit work you do because I saw in your bio that you work for the SE Justice Group and I had never heard of that nonprofit. And I would love for you to share what this organization does and then I will get into some of the things I would love to unpack in this section. So SE is a Black feminist organization and all about, we say abolition, but for people who don't have never heard that term, it's really around One, decarceration, getting rid of prisons and police as they exist now, but not just like stripping those systems without any replacement. It's really about building a society where those things are not needed Mm. and doing that by investing in people from the beginning of their life, right? We say that the communities that are safest are the ones with the most resources, not with the most police or control or cages. And we see that over and over. So SE works within the Black feminist lineage, and it is an organization of women who have incarcerated loved ones or who have been formerly incarcerated themselves. And a lot are Black women, right? Um, And they are core constituency who say that mass incarceration is not just something that impacts the people who are inside, but is actually impacting women, Black women, and entire communities because when you have someone who is incarcerated, it impacts every single person in that person's life, not just the person who's being punished. And that society as a whole has to reckon with that, has to see that and has to honor that if we are saying protect black women, if we are Mm -hmm. elevating women and trying to fight gender injustice, that mass incarceration is a core driver of injustice, inequality, inequity in our society. Um, So it really props up the voices of women with incarcerated loved ones and Black women in particular to say that they have the solutions to end mass incarceration and that women are out here being de facto lawyers. They are taking on loans. They Mm -hmm. are being caretakers of children and really the linchpins of entire communities um, when folks are incarcerated. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think 
something that came across my eye. This was on the website and I'm going to pull it as something to talk about because I think when we talk about incarceration, the focus is rarely, if ever, on women. So that's why I love this organization's focus. And so this was on the website. I'm just going to read it word for word so people can kind of listen. Given the prevalence and influence of racialized and gendered stereotypes in our society, it's easy to embrace the tropes depicting women's experiences as mere accidental collateral consequences of the mass incarceration of men, or assume that this community is homogeneously comprised of women on the outside who love men on the inside. I'd love for you to speak to why that's so important to elevate in your messaging. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the people, I think the majority of people who are incarcerated are actually men. And so a lot of our SE sisterhood is women and also gender nonconforming and trans Mm -hmm. women who have sons, husbands, you know, uncles, cousins inside. And a lot of the women in the sisterhood are also formally incarcerated themselves, right? Mm, And so there's many things at play here. One, that women who are incarcerated are often invisibilized because it is seen as something that mainly impacts men. And so things that are happening to women inside are often unseen. I'll give an example of recently in California, there was a... I believe it was a bill passed that gave reparations to women who had been illegally sterilized inside. That was happening 90s, early 2000s, and probably still to this day. That women are going in for, right, like just general procedures or checkups and coming out being completely sterilized. That That is a gender justice issue. They are not giving men vasectomies inside. Right. Like that's not happening. The fact that trans women inside are housed in male prisons and they are subject to increased rates of abuse inside because of that, that that is often invisibilized. And as Essie talks about that, right, the women on the outside are not casual collateral to something that someone else did or didn't do, right? Because our system often right. does not care whether you really did it or not, is whether they can put you in there or not. Right. But that women are having a real tangible and widespread impact, right? If we talk about 2.3 million people incarcerated, how many families is that? And really how many women is that, right? Like, you know, you think about even just like, the women in the public sphere who are women who hold people down while they're yeah. inside, right? Like, and people don't think about what that means. That is like emotional, that's psychological, that is financial, that is physical, that like women are often doing people's sentences with them. That as mm. long as that person is incarcerated, that that woman, if they're holding them down or they're the family member to someone or they're caretaker of the families outside that they're they are doing that entire prison sentence with that person and that's just to say the people who are convicted and incarcerated then there's people who are in their pre-trial there's legally innocent people maybe 10,000 in the state of California who have not been convicted of any crime and who have been in jails for up to and over a year. I think the longest person is like six years and you are not convicted wow. of anything. Right. Right. And so there's people in the SE sisterhood, you know, there's elders in the SE sisterhood who are 74 years old, 72 in their 60s. And you're thinking, you know, and we talk about right now about Black women resting. They don't get to rest. Right. That job is a full-time nonstop job because people are incarcerated and they have to work because that is a lost wage. They have to watch children because maybe their parents are incarcerated. And the way that the system works is that, right, like once one person in a family is incarcerated, it is much more likely that someone else in that family is also going to likely fall victim to that process. Because as we know, our system does target entire communities. Wow. Everyone who is sitting in jail without a trial yet. And then there's the financial burden of bails, which are like hardly possible to meet for all of these families who have been ripped apart by this system. I find the whole thing so disgusting as white supremacy is. It's brilliantly designed to keep people from getting out of it. 
Yeah, one of the things SE does every year is the Black Mamas bailout. Um, so this past um, June, we did the fifth year in a row of a Black Mamas bailout. And we, for four people, to get four people out of jail pre-trial, not convicted of anything, was $2.2 million to get four people out of jail. Who were not and we convicted. ended up having who are not convicted, who are legally innocent people and who are Black mothers, because it's called the Black Mama's Bailout. So yeah. each of these people have a child and is a Black woman. And we actually ended up not being able to get one of the women because her bail was $1.4 and the judge refused to lower it. So the other women, we were able to get lower bail amounts. And ultimately, Essie paid about $800,000 for the freedom of three Black mothers. Wow just three that's so mass incarceration is a profit making machine that is disgusting yeah but i did want to take this time to unpack a couple myths too about incarceration so one one of which being and this is something you hear often by a lot of people it's like well the prison system or prisons in general make us safer oh my goodness okay so just fun fact about me is i am a true crime junkie which is a very funny thing to be as an abolitionist, but I listen to so much true crime. And one of the things that I always clock, cause I always, I listen to like Dateline. I listen to all of them, let's be real. But I listen to Dateline a lot because, you know, Dateline is like one of the media organizations that really started this true crime thing, right? Yeah. Like they made documentaries. Like I used to watch Dateline with my mom and that was her like African mother way of telling me that the world was dangerous and I needed to be careful. Um, <laughs> And I listen to these episodes nowadays and even witness this in the public sphere where um, someone would have done something atrocious. Usually it's they would have killed someone or sexually violated someone. And they will trot out the history of um, their record. Mm -hmm. They will say that they were previously incarcerated for this and they were previously incarcerated for this and they were previously incarcerated for this maybe all the way up to their teenagehood. And what I'll usually see people say is, why didn't they keep them? Why did they let them out? Why didn't they put them under the jail? They could have prevented this if they had just kept that person. And what I always think about is, how are you not thinking about how each of those instances of incarceration made that person worse? Mm, right yeah because they weren't born evil for the most part most people are not just like born evil yeah there's some history of trauma there's something that happened to them um i heard a quote great quote once that said for most people the first experience of violence is not in the commission of it mm. so so that means that most people that someone had to expose them to violence before they were perpetrating that onto other people or someone took their power away in some way that they were then you know compelled to do that to others or whatever something yeah. in their story and so what i hear is right we have a school to prison pipeline yes so recently there was something that happened in georgia where someone um kidnapped a woman and ended up killing her and the record went back to when he was 17 years old and stole an iPad from a teacher. And so when I think about that a 17 year old black boy stole an iPad from a teacher, right? Like maybe that was stupid. Maybe he really needed it, like something pretty minor. Right. And he was put into the system for that. And we know that prisons are sites of sexual violence. We know that people in there are like oftentimes career criminals and like, yeah. if they don't have a support system and they're continuing to be abused inside that like that criminality will continue like that's a result of something not because people were just born that way and so then i think about like this person was put in there and had a traumatic experience so now it's like whatever happened to you before you went in there probably was the reason you got in there now you in there and you adding trauma and then you went back and right. then you kept going back and then you did something freaking horrible. Yeah. And why does nobody ask how the system contributed to that? Right? Because right. for me, I'm like, every time y'all trot out this record, 
I'm just seeing how you made this person worse at every single turn and that the system actually did not rehabilitate them. They actually escalated in their behavior ultimately. Well, yeah, and the system is not set up to rehabilitate anyone. It's set up to cage people. Exactly. And when rehabilitation does happen, it's often because of family members who are continuing to hold that person, community members are making sure that they don't go back inside. So that's one of the things that I think about, right, when I think about prisons. Then just in general, we think about the ways that the system responds to victims of sexual violence, that oftentimes people are re-traumatized that they are not listened to, that they are ignored, right? That like sex workers, like so many serial killers target sex workers because they know that the police like will not pay attention to what was happening to them. Um, And oftentimes that there are like stories that like the police were like hanging out with the serial killers at their house. And then later they were like, oh snap, that was my homie, whoops, you know? And yeah, to think about that these same systems of people who are perpetuating violence on people inside because they think it's their job to punish or perpetuating violence on black people outside like how could you think that those are the same people to keep you safe it just doesn't make sense like if you've ever met a ceo or a police officer and they are like not your friend or homie like those are not people i would trust to keep me safe ever like for anything like i do not call them absolutely not and i volunteered at a juvenile detention center in uh, king county for a couple years and being inside there was not a place where i felt safe (laughs) like i don't know how any young person could be brought inside there and feel safe there is nothing in there the way that people right. are treated on the inside, it is not, especially with some of the the people who are working there and making sure everybody is safe, they're not nice people. And in fact, yeah. they're not trained properly to support the people coming in. And so um, I heard someone say once, like, there's an activity that they kind of facilitate a discussion on whether or not prisons or jails are safe. And in facilitating this discussion, they're like, okay, think of a place in your mind that makes you feel safe. Just think of any place in your mind that makes you feel safe. Nobody in the room is going to say a jail or a prison. (laughs) So like, why are we doing this? Yeah. And something I actually want to add to this is that, you know, here in the Bay, a lot of people talk about houselessness, right? And Mm -hmm. we see so many people, well, anywhere you go in the US, there's people living outside. It's really atrocious. And one of the things that people don't think about is that a lot of those people have been incarcerated. That one of the side effects, one of the consequences of incarceration is once you come out that you are disenfranchised from housing, from jobs, from, yeah, regular society. And so, whether you do or do not have a mental illness and that's something else to talk about how prisons and jails are being used to warehouse people who have mental illnesses whether you do or don't if you come out and you don't have a support system you don't have anyone who's looking out for you and now you're ostracized by society of course we're going to have hundreds of thousands of people living outside yeah and that's before you even think about the economic influences the realities of addiction everything else like yeah just mass incarceration alone will create a housing crisis and we see it we see it in the bay area certainly the last thing that i actually wanted to bring up which you kind of set up earlier when you were talking about the ultimate goal of the se justice group in abolition the myth is abolish the police or sentiments like defund the police is a knee-jerk reaction with no research yeah first of all shout out to me because i definitely wrote an article about this that's an essence magazine so if you Ah! do my name you'll totally find the essence article where i talk about this exactly we're gonna highlight Um, it (laughs) um but yeah well first is that i just want to ask people how often do the police show up before something happens and stop it from happening right so Police officers are often not stopping crime from happening. They are coming afterwards and responding or they're responding to a situation and then escalating it and making it hella worse than before they showed up, um, which is often what happens in interactions with black folks. So that's one that the police ain't actually stopping anything from happening. They are just responding after the fact and usually badly. 
And then the second thing is the amount of resources that we dedicate to the police. So in most places, the police are going to be one of the highest budget line items in every single city budget. That is inclusive of salaries and often overtime that police are putting in like thousands and thousands of hours of overtime that we are paying for. It is also inclusive of settlements that they are paying when they do go and make situations worse and families have the right to sue them and they pay millions of millions of dollars which don't come out of their personal pockets. It's also paying for militarized equipment like tanks and AKs and snipers and whatever, you know, the robot dogs, whatever else they like think is fun because they're just like big dudes trying to play G.I. Joe out here in just regular streets. It's a lot of toxic masculinity just with resources to buy militarized weapons. Cool. Right. And they're overpaid. <laughs> so even things like cutting the police budget slightly and giving it to a school budget is now being considered defund. Right. Right. Which is incredibly problematic that we can't even balance our budgets in a way that say, like, we just need a little less of y'all and maybe a little more of this and there would actually be less chaos. Right. Like I think about there's this officer, L.A. Sheriff's Deputy Kevin Walker, who in October of 2020 murdered an Essie sister's loved one, mm -hmm. Dana Mitchell Young Jr. His name was he was known as Malik to his family and friends. And Kevin Walker killed Malik five months after he had pulled another black man out of his car, beat him so badly that he's blind in his left eye and then proceeded to tell his other officer to take his pants down and tase him in the penis. Five months later, he shot Malik, who was unarmed. He had nothing but a COVID-19 mask, and he shot him four times, also in the penis. This officer is in the Southern LA Sheriff's Department that has been documented to have deputy gangs, gangs within the police department. They're under DOJ investigation, and he gets paid I think $152,000 a year. Oh my God. That was in 2019. So why? Why? Why, why? does he get paid $152,000 a year? And after he beat this man and took his eyesight, they dropped the traffic charges because it was a traffic stop. And now he is suing the city of LA and they're going to have to pay him. And since 2000, LA cops have killed almost a thousand people in 20 years. Wow. A thousand people. And all of those people were not armed. I mean, like a lot of those people were just like teenagers mm -mm. or fleeing or there was no camera. So we don't know what the heck happened. And the citizens of Los Angeles, just Los Angeles alone, have to pay for that. So imagine if instead of that, we took all of those same resources and we gave people a quality education from the beginning of their lives. Right. Or addressed food deserts or built parks in every single neighborhood. Or gave housing to people. Or gave housing to people or redid the lead pipes so lead wasn't impacting children's brains, right? Mm -hmm. Like there is actually a lot that we could do if we wanted to keep our communities safe that have nothing to do with the police, because again, they don't actually intervene before anything happens. As we were talking about the medical system earlier, it's very similar. Police are here to treat symptoms of a root cause. Right. And the root cause has completely been ignored as though we don't understand human nature at this point and don't know how to like have people be peaceful and just like chill and not joining gangs and not right. shooting each other. Like, there's actually a lot that we could do. Right, and there's actually a lot of research. There's actually a lot of knowledge at our fingertips there, you know, like. Yeah, and one of the things that Essie did recently is ask people who are currently incarcerated, what would have stopped them from not being incarcerated? Like, what could have happened in their path to make it so that they didn't go to prison? And most people will say, if I had had access to housing, if I had mental health care, if I had like, yeah, like resources and education yeah. around like conflict de-escalation, like 
people are just like, if I was resourced, yeah, I wouldn't have ended up here. Which is not <laughs> like, hard to understand at all. And absolutely not rocket science. <laughs> it's just not. And they want to make us feel like it is, you know, people yeah. want us to feel like these human beings out here are getting crazier and more dangerous and so like, you know, just depraved. And it's like, okay, but that people didn't just like invent that. Right. <laughs> they didn't just like, that didn't just happen in a vacuum, that something actually happens to people over and over. There's compounded trauma in people's lives that then lead them to perpetrate violence against other people or to try to take back control from society by like, you know, throwing a big F you to all of us by harming us, yeah, you know, and harming themselves, right? Like we always talk about how the expression of harm to other people is really an expression of harm to the self and how that shows up. I do want to say one more thing because of how you started this question is also people believing that the idea of defund the police is unresearched mm -hmm. or naive or unprincipled in some way. Like, you know, I mm -hmm. mean, yeah, even Black celebrities and politicians have said things to those same sentiments. And for me, I always think about who is pitching these ideas. Like, who is actually saying that we should do this? It's Black women. Yeah. And who is devalued in our societies? It's Black women. And so to believe that Black women are out here naively saying defund the police as though we are not the victims of violence more than anyone else, right? Mm -hmm. Like if a Black trans woman can say defund the police and y'all talking about how we gonna be kept safe, who are you asking? Right. <laughs> who are you asking? Oh like, my gosh. Yeah, so there is incredible histories of research, lived experience, of political analysis that exist out there. And for folks to believe that there isn't is just a product of white supremacy hiding our work from you or willful ignorance. Thank you for answering those, for unpacking those with me. And we're going to move into the actual main segment of the podcast where I ask you, what is no longer your ministry? Yes, I love this question. Fat phobia is no longer my ministry. And I say that aspirationally and living. <laughs> I think this is like the thing that has impacted my life, you know, more than more than a lot of other things. So I grew up in the Gambia and then came to the US as a refugee super young. And that diet change had an immediate impact on my body, right? Like going from West Africa to America, which, it was a lot. And to have at a very young age, people in my family commenting on the ways that my body was changing and forcing me to exercise in order to look a certain way, pointing things out about my body, had a significant impact at a young age. And then unfortunately I lived in a household with someone who was incredibly emotionally abusive. Mm. And in that time I developed an eating disorder because I couldn't control the chaos that was happening in my house. And so mm. the only thing that I could control was like my food and my body. And that's the place that I turned to as a method of control. And the detrimental impacts of that time is something that I'm still healing from to this day. I'm 29 years old. I think that was really happening when I was like 13 to 16. And yeah, I recently found an old journal of mine from that time. And it's so heartbreaking to see like the images that I was cutting out of magazines and putting in my journal. You know, I'm like, these are anorexic women right because like yeah. especially the mo modeling industry at that time like mm -hmm. these are undernourished people for the most part that i was putting as the aspiration of what i wanted to not even to mention that like my genetics did not match these white women i was putting in these damn journals i mean that's such a real thing because i i've struggled with this as well growing up and especially in going to school in predominantly white institutions and my body is not like your regular white woman's body and as a kid it was weird because i reflect back and i think kids 
actually talked about, at least in my classes, their weight. Like for some reason that was something that came up like very socially and it was it was never supposed to be a big deal because we're all kids, right? You don't think that at that point, this is like, I'm remembering fifth grade. I remember kids would be like, oh, I weigh like 60 pounds or something like that. Or like, and I would be like, oh my, I weigh way more than that. So now I can't talk about it. And they're gonna look at me because I look so different from them. But it's like, you would look at all these other people, their bodies aren't going to look like ours because of our genetics. <laughs> Right. And not just that. I mean, oh man, there's so much in this. But recently I've been learning about the connection between weight gain and weight retention and chronic inflammation mm. um, because I have a chronic inflammatory disease. And it was like mind blowing for me to read this magazine article that was talking about some of the scientific inquiry into how chronic inflammatory disorders has a link to like also weight gain and like weight retention and then thinking about like who has chronic inflammatory disorders even thinking that like stress as a result of racism sexism results in chronic inflammation even if you don't have a disorder and thinking about the way that that impacts black women's bodies specifically i'm like this is so much deeper than y'all even talk about yeah because right? we could attribute it to genetics if we wanted we could also talk about like maybe we're bigger body because we're under chronic stress and yeah. chronic inflammation because of having to respond to this world that is like constantly attacking us in these ways. Mm. You know, there's also like kind of like the more, <laughs> I call it woo-woo, I'm sure there's a better term <laughs> for it, but there's like the woo-woo beliefs around like weight being protective, that your body holds on to weight when it's trying to like protect you from something from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. Then there's the idea of epigenetics, where if your great grandmother a few generations ago lived through a time of starvation, that her genes will try to express themselves in a way to hold on to fat and then pass that on. And that lasts for the next two generations. Wow. So if two generations ago, your people experienced something like famine that yeah. you might be bigger bodied as a result of that. Like there's so many wow. things that nobody tells you. Yeah, and instead just they just tell you to like, hate yourself. It's my fault. <laughs> yeah. And oh, man, and then, you know, so often growing up, like with my skinny friends who just like, I'm like, you eat like crap. You eat so badly. I have done more hours in the gym than you. I have eaten more salads in my life than you. And yet my body will never look like yours. And to think that for so long, I believed that that was a personal and moral failing. Mm. Ooh, no longer my ministry. No Girl. longer my ministry. Yeah, I'm curious about what kind of messages were being communicated to you at the time that you were struggling with this and where they were coming from. Yeah. One was certainly my family, right? Again, like pinching the sides of my belly or mm. like, oh, you got, or you got bigger every time you saw somebody or just the comments that they make in which they're trying to be protective. Honestly, like watching like, what was that weight loss show with Jillian Michaels, Biggest Loser? The Biggest Loser. Yeah, I used to watch that. My, mo my mom would like have me watch that with her. And that's really intense. Or that my mother would point out fat people and be like, look, 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 and make comments, you know? And so you, it's like first the familial reinforcement of like, this is not how you're supposed to be, but that people will talk and think badly of you because like it's y'all are literally doing it to my face. <laughs> so that's one, right? Then there's of course the societal messages, like the images that you see, the pictures, the videos, who's on TV, who is the stars, the singers, like, right, there's that. And then for me, and this is something that goes on to this day, is the way that other people talk about themselves. So witnessing and hearing other people talk about their own weight gain or their bodies, or people often call their stomachs disgusting. Yeah. Um, and that happens to this day. I still witness people like even on their Instagram stories, just talking about themselves, say that. And I'm like, what does that mean about me? If you are smaller bodied than me and you're saying that about yourself? Yeah, that is a very triggering experience for me to this day as well. Like, especially in for me, there was there was a lot of like 
casual conversation in the workplace about, oh, well, I shouldn't be eating this because look at me, I'm a cow and, blah, and I'm sitting nearby and I'm like, you are a much smaller person than me. What are right. you thinking about me? Exactly. And the thing is, people would never say that to you. And they probably don't think that about you, but they think about about themselves. Yeah. Which is like, that's not a far extension. You could look at me or, you know, like, you're like, okay, well, if you're saying that about yourself, maybe you're looking at me and thinking, at least I'm not like that. Yeah. Right. I, I think it's really interesting. You talk about like, even instances of like your mom pointing out people. And I think this is just for anybody, like people will point out or target fat people and that none of your business like their body is literally none of your business you do not have the right to talk about them to point out at the it's in some cases to say things to them because you feel like you know them their body and their health better than they do as if it's all related and it's not right you know actually this recently happened to me yeah this was yesterday where i was on you know, going through people's Instagram stories. And I don't know how this person ended up on my page. Maybe we have a mutual friend, but they had posted a picture of a child, like, you know, a child who was like kind of chunky on their Instagram story. And they had, the caption was like, obesity in children isn't cute, but y'all are not ready for that conversation. And I have never deleted somebody so fast from my page. I was like, that is literally somebody's child that you don't know what they've been through. You don't know what their parents' financial situation is. You don't know their health history. You know nothing. And that's a fucking kid. I'm sorry for cursing. No, but but we're allowed to curse. I was here. just like, I was like, what? And then two, who isn't ready for the conversation? Who is not having the conversation that obesity isn't okay? Literally, that is the conversation all the time, which is toxic. You know, it's things like that where it's just like, how dare you? <laughs> it's so gross. And I think it's it's become something that's been made OK because our, of our fat phobic society. Like that's that's the thing is that comments like that. It's said so casually that people are like, this is OK. This is a stance we can take. We can pretend like we're talking about this because we're worried about other people's health. No, we're not. Someone said this on my last episode. We're not worried about anybody's health. We're just being assholes. Like really, you can't look at somebody's body and say that they're unhealthy. You can't do that. You actually have no idea how their body is and what their health history is. You don't. And so, but it's become so normalized to look down on fat people or just larger people in general. It's become something that people are like, yeah, this is okay. We're allowed to say these kinds of things. And the faux health experts. I mean, you know, recently I saw this doctor who was talking about like weight is not linked to diabetes. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what are you saying? Because this is the thing my mother brings up all the time about my weight is, you know, we have a history of diabetes in our family and I don't want that to happen to you. First of all, skinny people have diabetes. There's skinny people everywhere with yeah. diabetes. And there's fat people everywhere who don't have diabetes. So like point invalidated just there. And second of all, that this is something that is, if you're saying it's genetic, then it's genetic, right? Right. Not necessarily like something I can or cannot do. And if I were to develop diabetes, then it would be about my sugar intake, <laughs> which is not necessarily linked directly or indirectly, like to my weight, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's just like that people, yeah, are these faux health experts. And my mother is talking to me about my weight and health. And I'm like, I will literally do a two hour gym session with you right now. And like, you will be dead by the end of it. And I can go for another hour. That's... <laughs> like, talk to me about that. Right. You know, because <laughs> you don't know what my health practices are from looking at my body on the outside. And it's really sick that people do that to others and think that they're being helpful or medical professionals. And it's like, can you talk to my skinny friend who's putting down McDonald's every day and smokes 16 cigarettes a day? Cause you never talk to them. And yet they're hella more unhealthy than me. And more clearly unhealthy. Cause you can see all of these actions. Right. Well, I'm curious too. So as we get into your healing journey and we move into this segment, it's the work for me. I'm curious about what you do now as you're counteracting all of these beliefs that have been programmed into you and, and, you know, the history, the memories, these feelings stay with you. And so how do you 
keep yourself sane and work toward a more compassionate feeling about yourself and your body? I think one of the biggest things is giving myself grace because I'm not always in the place of like absolute confidence and not feeling some of those things that were ingrained so young. And so it's really giving myself grace to know that like, as these cycles repeat, that I can choose something new every time that I can have a different experience or learn something different or see a different perspective. And that when I'm not like at the top of my game, as far as my belief in my self-worth and my self-confidence, or I'm having a bad day or having intense body dysmorphia, that that does not invalidate all of the work that I have done to view myself as worthy and beautiful and like perfect and, you know, all of that stuff. And then, yeah, I think there's like practical things. Like I give myself affirmations in the mirror. Dancing naked is beautiful. Recently, like being sure that what I consume on social media isn't going to re-trigger some of my beliefs about my body and my self-worth. So like following bigger bodied and fat activists on social media who are like killing it and going off and have love and like do all the things that you tell yourself are not possible if you have this body. It's like, okay, well, I could just witness somebody who's literally doing all these things. I'm like trying to tell myself is it possible and it's clearly not true. Yeah, so like what I consume, who I watch, yeah, self-talk and also just being very transparent. For me, sometimes if I just say it out loud, whether it be to myself or the person who's with me, that it can pass a lot better and a lot easier than if I just hold it in and try Mm. to be like, oh, that's not happening, you know? Yeah. What's Um, an example of that? Oh my goodness. So recently, (laughs) my girlfriend tried to take me horseback riding in San Francisco because she's been there plenty of times and the place typically didn't take reservations. You just like show up and get on the horses. But I guess they've gotten a lot of press recently. So they had like a whole bunch of people there. You know, the lady was like, we don't know if we can take you, but like sign these waivers and what have you. And so while we're waiting to see if we can take the ride or not, she looks me up and down and she was like, I'm sorry to have to ask this, but our weight limit is 225 pounds. Are you, and then just like let the question, you know? And I was like, I was actually like immediately very embarrassed and I like kind of whispered it. I was like, I'm not. So she was like, well, let's just check. What? And go and goes and pulls out the scale, like easily accessible scale, and has me get on the scale and weighs me. And then she's like, okay, close, but no. I'm like, not what? close, stupid. Mm. I want to fight and I don't even know this person. And it's just like, I felt so small and I was like, damn, I need to lose weight if I want to ride horses. Like, it was just like all this stuff came up. And so, you know, I ha- we ended up leaving. We They couldn't put us on the ride. So you just traumatized me for no reason. Right. Um, and then we left and like, you know, went out and had a great day and we're in a river and like did all this other stuff. And later that night, it just like, you know, we were going to dinner and it just came back to me. You know, I'm like about to eat. And it just was like, yeah, this woman like really kind of humiliated me early. And my partner immediately was like, yo, what's wrong? Yeah, And I didn't want to say it. I didn't want to talk about it. So I was like, damn, I'm not trying to like have my insecurities out here on French Street. But like, yeah, I ended up just disclosing, like feeling really bad about my body. And just like, you know, she was like, oh, like, when did this start? And I was like, when that lady had me get on the scale this morning. Right. And I'm just like sitting there like feeling really bad. And my partner's like, don't think about my girl like that. Like, don't do that. You know, and she just was like giving me affirmations. And if I had sat there and just been silent and like held it all the way through dinner, it probably would have just kept coming with me. But because I told someone else and just like allowed someone else to support me through the moment, it like passed a lot quicker. Yeah. And I was just able to move through it. But yeah, just like casual things like that, where I like, I told you I was under the weight limit. And you were like, well, let's just check. Let's just like, traumatize yeah. you for fun. Like, you know, and she's like, cause you know, our horses can only carry so much. I was like, oh my God. I just feel like whoever put that person <laughs> in that position, like, I don't think that's okay in any kind of way. I'm sorry no, that happened to you. 
Me too. But I looked at their reviews later and they done it to other people too, who are like, who wrote about it. And I'm like, y'all are really out here. Like, if that's going to be the case, like put it on the waiver, put it on the website, like let folks know beforehand or weigh everybody. Right. It should be a like a practice, just weigh everybody if that's what you're going to do. If they're going to do that, I'm surprised it's not like, I'm surprised it's not on the waiver. I'm surprised it's not just like on their website, like, hey, by the way, I want to be very clear before you show up and we decide to make you step on a scale to prove, like, I don't like that at all. Right. And that the scale is like right there, propped up, like ready for any moment. And you just eyeballing me up and down, like this white woman just like, looking me up and down and making me get on a scale it's just like so much it was so many things that's that was not right i don't like it i wanted to ask you so you mentioned your body dysmorphia and i'm not sure everybody knows what that means so i'd love for you to explain what that is and how that shows up for you my understanding of body dysmorphia is essentially that like you are unable to really tell what your body looks like so oftentimes it's me believing that I'm much bigger than I actually am. For example, like, yeah, I've I've struggled with body dysmorphia basically, like, you know, since I got to this country and people started commenting on my weight. And so now I will look at pictures of myself in past, you know, times and years. And I'm like, I was tiny. Yeah. But if I remember that, I remember how big and huge and like clunky I felt. And so, yeah, it's this experience of really not being able to like objectively tell like what your body looks like. And for me, most often it's like believing that I'm much bigger than I am or like not correctly assessing my body and often assessing it in the negative. For me, it can show up like there are days where I look at myself and I'm like, yes, that's your body. You look good. And then like maybe the next day or even the next hour, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, I don't know what I'm seeing, but I, I don't like this. And it, and then it becomes like this kind of mind altering, like how do I know what I actually look like feeling? I'm curious if, if it comes in waves or if it's more consistent. And when it does happen, how do you manage and how do you move through or what is your way of dealing with it? I think for me, it comes in waves. Yeah, it's definitely a lot more inconsistent now. Before it was like the way I lived every day, every mirror, every experience was like that. Now it's a lot less consistent than that. But the looking at yourself in a mirror from many different angles and giving affirmations. One of the things I do is like touch every part of my body. I especially like will hold my belly in my hands and like tell my belly that I love her until I'm like weeping. So I'm like, oh, do I really believe this? I love you, girl. <laughs> so having that time to intentionally like put love into each and every one of your limbs and maybe like it doesn't work in the moment, but it has a cumulative impact of you talking to yourself in a different way. I'll also try to, sometimes if I have a really negative thought, I'll try to physically stop, like physically stop and be like, address the thought and be like, hey, I don't need you anymore. Or thank you Mm. for coming, but you can go. Like, you know, I really try to like physically arrest, just like whatever I'm doing, don't move. What was that? Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk to ourselves. A really great tip that I got recently from my friend Diara is to take videos of yourself. Mm. And even like screenshot photos from videos. Because the thing is, oftentimes when you see pictures of yourself, right? Like we know angles are a thing. But sometimes it's just like a weird angle of your body. Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, why do my arms look like that? And it's like, because it was a moment in time that someone who like didn't know your <laughs> angles just like took an unflattering picture of you. And if they took it in a different angle, you'd be like, damn, bad bitch. Right. Know? So she says like, take these videos of yourself because when other people experience us, they don't experience us as a stagnant moment. People mm-hmm. are not seeing you as like a still thing. Like we're often in motion and that stagnant ways of viewing ourselves does not capture our full magic, um, our full full beauty, our full everything, no matter what size your body is. Yeah, that is a conversation I've had to have with myself a lot about photos that are taken of me by other people. And when they catch that, just not your angle, just like the opposite of your angle. They didn't find the light. 
they let things show up that you were like, man, like, could you have told me I could have done something different? And I've had this practice recently of just being like, but that's what you looked in that moment. That's how you looked. And that's okay because we don't all look great in all of our moments. That's still you and that's okay. And I've had this practice of looking at photos and being like, okay, that was you in that moment. And it takes away some of that for me where I used to really like I would see a photo of me and then I would carry the feelings I had all day, Mm -hmm. all week. It would make me feel so bad. And for what? And now I'm like, I look at the photos. I'm like, okay. I mean, that's a picture of you. And then I pull up a photo of me that I really like. I'm like, that's also a picture of you. You look great. Like, (laughs) this is is how you look. This is your body. This is how you look in different moments. That's, that's okay. And it's, it's interesting that it's now become like an active conversation with myself. But like you, if I name it, if I say it out loud, if I talk through it to myself, then I don't spin out into this, like, what's happened to you? What's wrong with your body? Why haven't you ever changed? Which is where I used to go every time I saw a photo of me that someone else took. Yeah. And how often do you, like, actually look amazing and think you look amazing? And then you turn on that front camera and you're like, oh, gosh, whoa, (laughs) that angle. Oh, my goodness. Hold on. Let me move that. You know, like, that happens. That happens where you, like, you actually feel awesome. And then someone takes a picture of you and they're just like, what? <laughs> That's not what I thought I looked like, you know? So these cameras play games. They play games all the time. And another person I love, he's called on Instagram, the ugly black woman. Okay. Her name is Vanessa. She talks about the process of uglification, that one of the things that white supremacy does is uglify people and especially blackness and women to say that yeah like she is a bigger body dark skinned black woman and she is like i am so cute and delicious and chunky and amazing and she could say something completely different about herself and other people would believe it Mm -hmm. and even as she says all these things about herself there's some people who still won't believe it because in their eyes she has been uglified and she is like rejecting that and so she talks about uglification as a process that happens to people, right? There's like medical uglification of disabled bodies. Mm-hmm. There is uglification of our colors and our hues. There is uglification of our mental abilities, of our ages. And that reclaiming our ugly is an active fight against white supremacy. And so now it's like, yeah, I'm like, ooh, claiming like my chronic illness, like reclaiming my ugly and being like, I love y'all that. Can't have that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Y'all can't have that. My little jiggly arm. Y'all can't have that. Y'all can have that. <laughs> it's mine. I want to reclaim mine. <laughs> yes. So, right. So now I'll be like, okay, sure. You look ugly. That's mine. That's right. It's my ugly, period. You can't have it. Ain't got nothing to do with you. It's not your business. (laughs) So I want to quickly go to our last segment, which is about what you're not sorry for. So putting boundaries in place, putting yourself in the situation where if you just, in this case, like you're battling your body dysmorphia and self-talk isn't helping Uh, mantras aren't helping affirmations you know they help to a point but you're still feeling down what are your escape tendencies like what are your self-care activities what are the things that you can tell yourself you know what i'm not sorry i'm about to do this well recently i learned the difference between coping and resilience and how both can be okay so things like overeating, you know, which is something that like I've done in the past can be coping. That's not resilience because like that's not something that you want to like rely on for the long term to actually get you to the place you need to be. But it Mm -hmm. can be like food is comfort. Yeah. And not being judgmental about that because the reason you have your coping strategies is because they worked. Mm -hmm. They actually like worked (laughs) to get you to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, I love a carb. I love love cannabis. I'm actually a person who loves social media. Like, I have never, ever been the person who's like, I hate this. I have always been like, since Tumblr, I was like, I love this. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, sometimes my coping is like doom scrolling and just getting all the memes and all the hilarious TikTok reposts. 
and getting to a point where I can just be okay with my coping mechanisms and not judge them because it's just getting me to the next thing. Yeah. Right? It, it doesn't have to make me good or bad whether I do these things. And the thing is, the more grace that I give myself, the more those coping mechanisms actually diminish. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, I feel like today, if I have a really bad day, I don't need to like order a bunch of food to like feel okay. Yeah. A year ago, in the middle of the pandemic, at the height of isolation, ooh, girl, that DoorDash was being hit over and over and over again. <laughs> and I survived the pandemic. Right. And I didn't have a partner. And I didn't have nobody around. Yeah. And I survived. And food was my comfort. Right. And just like being okay with that. And then I think for me, again, the more grace and permission that I give myself, then it's a less like a closed fist. Mm -hmm. And it's like, next time I can be like, oh, maybe I'll paint something. Maybe yeah. I'll just go for a long walk. Maybe I'll do something else. It's not so judgmental because what I find is like the harder I judge something, the more I'll actually do it yes. <laughs> when I feel like out of control. It's like this weird. Yeah, I don't know. No, it's so true. I feel that exact way, even on the sentiment of like eating as comfort. I, I was talking to one of my close friends the other day on a walk. I was having a particularly rough day and I was like, you know, I really, I really don't want to emotionally eat. Everyone's always telling me that emotional eating is bad. And she was like, yeah, but that doesn't take into consideration your history of not eating when you're really anxious, when you're really stressed, like actually eating might be the best thing for you right now. And when she said that, I was like, I, I haven't even eaten today. So the fact that I was oh. talking to you, and it was like a 7 p.m. walk. The fact that I was talking to her about how I was making myself feel bad about not emotionally eating when I hadn't eaten a single thing that day, like that doesn't, wow. so it's, it's amazing. Well, it's amazing what good friends will do for you in those moments, but also, like you said, just letting go of that judgment and suddenly you're like, I can see, I can see that these things will actually help me right now. And if right. it helps me get through, I'm not sorry. <laughs> right, right. And that I didn't judge. Yeah. When oh, I saw a great today quote today that was like, you can't hate yourself into loving who you are. <laughs> I was like, yeah, duh. Right. Like, yeah. Previously, when I had disordered eating that was binging and purging, it was because I was so judgmental about myself even doing that and then I was trapped in the cycle mm. and only when I started to forgive myself only when I started to give myself grace was I able to come out of that so yeah, yeah you know it seems antithetical to some people because they think like being hard on yourself and screaming and like criticizing yourself is going to get you there and for some people that works I've had some dance teachers that <laughs> their way but I really truly believe for the most of us it's not right like if you have a child and they're learning how to walk and every time they fall you scream at them like that's not actually going to help them walk no you know, kids they fall and then you're like oh you did a great job try again and if we can give that same sort of encouragement to ourselves like even when we fall I think we can get a lot further this podcast is a labor of love and too often, labor by Black women happens without compensation. If anything in this episode resonated, and if you're taking anything along with you today, please consider donating to our Patreon or sending funds via Venmo. All information is available on that'snolongermyministry.com. Also, wherever you're listening to this episode, please consider subscribing and tuning in to next week's community release. Bye fam.